0: People need to be able to articulate the stories of what's important to them, and then they are willing to listen to what other people have to say. Even the people who continue to disagree with each other realized that there was an authentic person there that was talking about something that was sincerely important to them. And so even if they disagreed, they could appreciate that human being and have civil conversation with them. Welcome to
1: another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I just want to take a minute and welcome you into the Kelly. family. And I want to let you know that this whole show and all that we do exists for you. So if you are an organizational leader or you're thinking about jumping into a management or organizational leadership position, maybe you're looking to jump off and start your own uh, company and you just have some questions. You don't know where to begin. You're just wrestling um, with tough leadership uh, topics right now within your organization. We would love to come alongside you and help turn it into a topic. Maybe you want to um, hear from some of our faculty and know what some trends are happening in the business world or just want to hear from our faculty or... You know of a person who would make an awesome guest for our show. We would love to hear from you. Send us an email to R O I pod. That's R O I P-O-D at I U P U I dot Edu. Again, R O I P O D at I U P U I dot Edu. Well, unfortunately, in 2021, you know, as organizations begin to come back in and it's it's been something that's been happening, you know for decades now, but I think we're really starting to see the culmination of it is politics and, and division seem to be everywhere. You know, we can't even go to the grocery store or watch sports or it seems like we can't do things without having really heated political conversations. But the reality is, is you know, we do all need to work together. When we do come into the office, there are moments where we do have to put ourselves last and put our team first we do have to come in and we have to work together but but it's hard and and I get it you know we we have these conversations that are really hard because we don't see eye to eye and for whatever reason with with our neighbor with a person that works across the hall but how can we you know as organizational leaders as we step into more management roles as we begin and continue to lead our teams forward we are charged with having to bring our teams together and bringing success to our teams. And at the end of the day, you know, celebrating that because at the end of the day, you know, we are working under the same organization. We should be working together and because we have team members that we want to see succeed. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about. How in the midst, you know, of, of different, um, different divisions, whether that be political, racial, whether that be gender. I mean, fill in the blank on the divisions. How do we as organizational leaders work to build those bridges? How do we keep everyone at the table and make sure everyone feels a part of the team? So today, I am honored to be joined by Professor of Business of Law and Ethics here at the Kelly School of Business, Timothy Fort. Tim, welcome to the ROI Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me here, and I got to say, just listening to that introduction, I just signed an agreement to uh, to write a book on this topic that we're going to be talking about. And I may have to use that introduction. I just think that really sets the stage very well. And so I may shamelessly purloin what you just said in order to introduce the topic of the book.
1: Oh, you're absolutely welcome to it. No, we're, we're so honored to have you because, you know, you're sharing so much wisdom. I mean, if that's all I can give to you as a little, as a little you know, gift, please, by all means. Um, but, you know, we, we there is this... We see it every day. We we can't turn the news on. We we watch sports. We come to the office. You know everything has um, tints of politics into it, or tints of you know various divisiveness, or it feels divisive, even though it may not be. Um, and you know we we as organizational leaders, we do have responsibility uh, to look after our team to make sure that everyone's seen and heard and brought to the table, but at the same time making sure that we're all working together because that's that's ultimately the key when you're in a business, when you're an organization, when you're on a team is you want to work together. So before we dive into some of these practical, you know, tips on and, and go through your research, I'd love to start in on, you know, this thesis, your your cultural artifacts, you know, the things starting to set the stage of the things that um, we can work together or organizational leaders can start thinking of um, that are going to set us up for success. So take us through, you know,
0: your, your research on, on building, building teams. Sure. Sure. Happy to. So, um, and I'm, I'm I apologize to our, our listeners that I am a storyteller. So once somebody asks me a question, it reminds me of a story. And so I'm going to start with a story of how this got started, I guess I should say. Um, so my, my if, if you ask people in the field, what do I do? What's my primary research? What am I known for? it's been that I kind of hatched a new area of research of how ethical business behavior can contribute to peace and reduce the amount of violence in the world. I've written four books on that, and it was really a great topic to be writing about during my time before I came to um, Indiana, which was at George Washington University, where you're in Foggy Bottom, where you're just running into people that could have an interest of what you're talking about. So, I mean, I've, I've written about that for a long, long time, and then I came out to IU, and I was wondering, well, yeah, I'd finished my fourth book. And um, I, am I going to keep writing about this topic you know, out here in the Midwest now? I am a native Midwesterner, but it's like this is a little bit different feel than being in, in Washington, D.C. Well, one of the great advantages, as you well know, of being at Indiana University is you have the Jacobs School of Music here. And I have a musical background from going back years and years. And so I wanted my sons to take piano lessons over at Jacobs. And so my six and nine year old at the time, my sons were taking lessons and I was sitting outside the, their, their, their practice rooms just doing some work on a Saturday morning. And all of a sudden it struck me of why couldn't you use music as a nudge for people to think a little bit differently? I mean, music has an, an emotional component to it. In fact, if you do the research on it, it, it literally gets into our bones. If you're listening to music, you can't just sit still you start tapping your feet or your hands or you start swaying or moving your head. And so it does something to our entire body. And I was thinking that, well, if you had certain kinds of music, could that orient us towards certain kinds of behavior rather than others? So I started to play with that concept, took some courses over at the Jacobs School of Music, which was great fun. Uh, ended up taking courses with people who became my students because they were, they were all undergraduates and they became students in my class a year later. And what the, the model that I came up is, in ethics, there is a model of moral development that was structured by Lawrence Colbert. And basically, it, it's a six-stage model that you be ethical so that you stay out of trouble, you're ethical in order to sustain relationships, you're ethical simply because it's the right thing to do. That's an oversimplification. There's some steps within that. So I started to give assignments to my students, asking them to identify six pieces of music that makes them think differently. And so, I mean, one of them could be very competitive, very us versus them. You know, what do I want to listen to if I'm getting ready for a fight? You know, that kind of thing. But then there's others. And for me, if I wanted to, to listen to that or have that orientation, I might listen to the old you know, Rocky films or something like that, which were popular when I was in school. Um, but then if I want to have something that reminds me of sustaining my relationships, I might listen to the theme song from Friends. I'll be there for you and a you know, very different model to put you in a very different state of mind. Or if you wanted to have something that you, you was thinking, giving you a sense of transcendence or perspective, then I might listen to something like Top of the World from either The Carpenters in my area or Imagine Dragons more recently. And then if I want to remind myself that at any time during the day, I might move between all of these. I might, if you want, you can go to scripture if you want, or you can go to the Bird's 60s uh, hit of Turn, 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 to everything that there is a season because there's a time that we go through all of these. So that was the starting point of how to use music to orient us towards certain frames of mind where we might be more friendly at work, cooperative at work, as opposed to competitive at work. And I told my students, this will help you understand from an academic standpoint, Kohlberg's levels of moral development, which was important for my course, but it gives you a tool for you to walk into the workplace that if you're not in the right state of mind, that you've got your own tune that you can listen to that will help you put yourself into that state of mind. So it's a walkaway practical thing. So I started with that, but then it struck me that these artifacts, and I just identify a cultural artifact. If you look at that great resource, Wikipedia or something like that, will say it's you know basically anthropologists say it's anything that human beings create. So it can be a fork. Um, or it could be you know a ring that you put on, or that's really not, yeah, yeah, that would be one too. Or in my case, I wanted to focus more on music, sports, film, cuisine, even our pets. And our pets are natural creatures, they're not cultural artifacts, but making them into pets does make them into cultural artifacts. And what struck me was that if I thought about them, those artifacts, those experiences, music, sports, the others, can be conflictual, but they can also be the starting point for people to come together. And when in my book that I'm writing, I start off talking about my, I told you I was a storyteller. I, I, I start off with the story of when I got married on the farm where I grew up. My wife and I got married on the front porch of the farm. And I grew up in a very politically diverse family during the Vietnam war where people would angrily storm out of the uh, evening, evening meal because they were so angry with each other, which at eight years old confused me of why, why are my cousins and brothers and things like that fighting with each other. Um, but when we, when we came up with the family picture, you know the family picture that you have at a wedding, and I looked at the arrangement of the 30 family members that were on the porch there. Uh, a CNN graphics designer could not have put a better job of, grade, of putting them in positions from ultra-conservative to ultra-liberal. Highlighted by my twin redheaded cousins, who one was ultra conservative, one was ultra liberal, and they were had arranged themselves on the opposite ends of the the, the photograph, and everybody else was perfectly. I mean, next more most conservative, then more moderate conservative, centrist, you know, me all the way around, and of course, who is in the center of a wedding picture? My wife and me, which is what we are. I mean, that's where we are politically. That's where we are in our families. We're the people who get people to talk to each other and those kinds of things. And I reflected then of how did my family handle that night? What did they talk about? They talked about the sports teams. They talked about the music. They talked about the dogs and the horses that were running around. They talked about the dance. All of these cultural artifacts that even allowed them to tease each other about how different politically they were. And that started me thinking that this is an opportunity. There's positive and negatives to everything. Everything has ambivalence to them so that sports can be used to divide us but they can also be used to bring us together. And so I thought, I want to run with this notion of cultural artifacts, both in terms of how we make our decisions and how it can provide common ground. And if you think of those decisions and listen to a piece of music that is more sustaining relationship, friends, as opposed to Rocky beating the heck out of somebody else, you're more oriented to use that cultural artifact to build common ground. So that's, you know, a very down-to-earth kind of lay representation of what the theory is. And then I've done research in musicology and sports sociology and stuff like that in order to try to say this isn't just Tim's, you you know, Country Boys storytelling and stuff, but there's actually research that supports all of this.
1: And I think that's a really amazing way for organizational leaders to look at their teams. You know, with with you, your family, obviously, you know, we can't choose the family we're a part of. We're born into them and we get what we get. I mean, to some degree, you know, we do have some some ability to choose who is working for us. But if you're on a team and you're not in a hiring position or you're in a position that um, in, can bring people in, you don't get to choose True. who who's sitting next to you, who you're sharing lunch with, who you're in a meeting with, um, and a lot of times, I mean, I, I I just thought of quite a few examples, you know, of those heated conversations that happen and people storm out. I mean, that just that that does happen even in the workplace, um, and so I think you know you're a great way of thinking about that is that's what that's what we're supposed to do as an organizational leader is. How do we find those common grounds? How do we create some of these neutral spaces for our teams to be able to, you know what, come together, like you were saying? And so in developing um, more of a foundation before we start getting into the takeaways and things that organizational leaders can do, I want to take a step back for an organizational leader and their mindset. You know, what, what how should an organizational leader come into their team you know, what, what ways are, uh, are effective because obviously, you know, when in heated conversations in heated meetings, body language, you know, visual cues, words can be taken totally out of context. And so for an organizational leader, being the one, being the center, being that, that, that grounding factor for their team, what, what's the mindset an organizational leader must start to embrace, you know, when thinking about, all right, how am I going to start bringing my team together?
0: First thing that the leader needs to do in almost any situation is to demonstrate some degree of vulnerability to themselves and also to be willing to listen to people's stories. And that sounds kind of really, really soft, but people need to be able to articulate the stories of what's important to them. And then they are willing to listen to what other people have to say. I'll give you a business example. I um, mean, and I'm a big Big guy, well, I've already said on, on storytelling, but not just my own storytelling, but how effective it is. I did a consulting gig. It's been a long time ago, 30 years ago, probably with a really fantastic family business. Um, it was um, had 30 shareholders. It was going to their fourth generation of business ownership. It was in a small town in the Midwest. It went toe to toe with fortune 500 companies and one, it was a business to business kind of a business. Uh, incredibly high morale within their employees, almost no lawsuits, very engaged in the community. For an ethics professor, it was like, this is a company that's a dream come true. The problem was that the the shareholders, the family members, 30 of them, hated each other's guts. And they hated each other's guts on political and social issues. Uh, And they viewed them as highly moral issues. And so it wasn't just that I disagree, but you're just flat out wrong maybe evil, you know, maybe someone that I could call, call the police on, which they did. They're actually calling the police. It was, it was a bad, bad situation. To their credit, they recognized that the, the, the business would not be able to be sustainable with that degree of animosity within the shareholders. So they heard me give a speech and they hired me to come in to help them. And it was very clear in interviewing the, the, the leaders of the organization that they expected me as an ethics professor to side with their moral views as opposed to the other sides. They all just disagree because, you know, I'm in the middle of the road or people can tell that pretty quickly that I'm going to side with one as opposed to the other. Of course, I didn't do that. What I did was an assignment that I also give as the first week to my students, whether they're an executive MBA or whether an undergraduate, which is to tell me a story about something that you saw in business that you thought was good and then explain why. Which is much harder to do than to tell me a story about something that really makes you mad. That's easy to do. We can always think of something that really, really makes us angry. But to identify what you think is good, an action you thought was good, and then to tell a story or explain it is much harder. So they did that. We compiled them into a little booklet, and we spent really a very painful Saturday reading through all the stories. But it changed everything because... Even the people who continued to disagree with each other realized that there was an authentic person there that was talking about something that was sincerely important to them. And so, even if they disagreed, they could appreciate that human being and have civil conversation with them. To the extent that I've checked back with them over the years and they've said consistently, we don't know why we have ever had to hire you, Tim, because we get along so well. It's like, get along so well, you're ready to kill each other. But it is it, it storytelling itself lets people express themselves. They feel good that someone has listened to them and that then can foster dialogue. If you want a musical theater example of this, uh, if any of our listeners um, uh, watched or listened to Uh, the uh, uh, musical Hamilton. There's a scene in Hamilton, which is depiction of, of real life in the 1800s when Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were running for president. And back in those days, even if you're on the same party, the vice president and the presidential candidate could leap over each other, which was what Burr was trying to do. He was slated as VP, but he had a chance to overtake Jefferson and actually become president. So there's a big big um, fight within their own party of who's going to win. And they're deadlocked and it goes to Congress. So they have to go to the other party, which is the Federalist led by Alexander Hamilton of, to decide it. And Hamilton and Jefferson had fought like crazy during Washington's administration, but they went to Hamilton of who he would choose. And he said, I choose Jefferson. And they say, why? He said, yeah, Jefferson and I fought 75 different times, but Jefferson has beliefs. Burr has none. And the fact that people have beliefs, even if they disagree, can still engender the kind of respect that people can work together. But that requires taking some time to let people tell their stories and to listen to those stories. And then you can have the conversations that leads to civil conversation.
1: A lot of these conversations do break out. Let's say in a heated meeting, let's say, I think that's a great point. I do think a lot of times, a lot of these conversations come to, they feel moral. Like they feel like there's this sense of, well, my right, I am right. And not just right, but I am morally and virtuously correct. And thus the other side then must be evil and and the other side's kind of viewing it that way and when things boil over in the workplace i think you know we see that a lot you, there's headlines or organizations are having infighting based on really strong social issues or political issues and so in those roles you know i think a lot of times an organizational leader i mean they want they want the best but at the same time i mean they they don't want to get caught up in the Whose side am I going to be on? What side am I going to be on? You know, and I think you were alluding to it a little little bit in how you approach the situation. But for organizational leaders to get in the right mindset, you know, what, how do they need to define their role when coming in to de-escalate conversations or to work to, you know, like you did, to bring people back together? What should a role um, of an organizational leader should come in so they can protect themselves at the same time, work to be you know, seen as that person who's, I'm fighting for the overall team, not just picking sides.
0: So, the first thing you got to do is you got to be the listener. I mean, that's, that's the role that you come in. You come in as a listener, that you want to hear everybody out. You want to hear what the different perspectives or the, the different sides are. Because just in doing that, you engender a degree of respect that people feel that they have been heard. And then they're, or, I'll step back for a second. You know, I've had a really, really good career. Um, and have won a bunch of awards, run a bunch of books and everything. Every time I have done that, I have fooled myself in thinking that my class will want to listen to what I have to say. Never happens. They don't care what I have to say. I don't care how many awards or books or anything i have written. They don't care unless they've had a chance to talk first. And so in, in that role as a professor, I am an organizational leader and I know that if I come in and I start lecturing them of, you know, these are the most important virtues that you should follow, it just turns the off switch. But instead, what I other thing that I do that first week of class is, tell me what your virtues are. And then let's see if there's common ground of what we all agree are really important virtues. They're always the same, honesty, truth-telling, good communication, creativity, fun. I mean, they're always accountability. They're always the same thing. But they got to tell me as opposed to me telling them. Same thing with an organizational leader. You need to let them talk first. That will also help you as a tactical uh, issue to understand exactly what's going on. Because you may not know exactly what's going on. And if you start to try to solve the issue before you know what's going on, you may not be solving the issue. You're solving something else that you think is the issue, but you don't know. So the dynamic of giving the people the opportunity to, to listen before you say anything It's kind of a double win situation for you of you being able to know what the situation is, and they feel much more heard. And after they felt much more heard, then they will, okay, what? Well, what do you say? And so the 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 role of being an empathetic listener, I think, is the key first thing if you're if you're walking into a a volatile situation.
1: Let's talk about now creating some of these neutral spaces. You know, the actual cultural artifacts. You see, we're talking about music, films. Uh, you know things that we can, we all can relate to that are just, you know, food. I mean, things that they're just, they just live on their own, and they they do bring us together because we do, we understand them, we get them. Um, you know, how do organizational leaders um, create those those neutral spaces, um, especially if some of those spaces have been hijacked or been been made out to be another place of divisiveness? How can an organizational leader come in and you know work to, hey, we are going to keep this like. Keep this neutral so that we all have some sanity at the, at the end of the day.
0: Right. Yeah, I'd say three things sir. First, I'm going to take you way back, even before I was uh, doing uh, Business and Peace, which was when I was a professor at the University of Michigan. That What I argued was that that businesses can be what I call a mediating institution. A media institution is a fancy sociological term for like an extended family or a neighborhood or, or or something like that. And the notion of media institutions from a natural law perspective has been that human beings develop their moral character in these small organizations where there's face-to-face interactions with each other, and you have to you you have to deal with the consequences of your action. No matter how much your sister makes you mad, you still have to find a way to get along with her. That kind of thing. You're you're in this situation. And so there are consequences to their action, which means that people are also being heard. I mean, everybody does have a voice. And then from a more empirical side, there are magic numbers that if you give above a certain size, that the, the, the kind of conversation goes haywire. And they're very specific, four to six, that's about the maximum number you can have a conversation with, even at a cocktail party. 30, which is you get a work group that's bigger than 30, the number of disputes that break out exponentially for every person you add, as opposed to arithmetically, something goes a little bit haywire. Also, thirty is the 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 number average number of people that anthropologists believes uh, existed in hunter gatherer societies for ninety eight to ninety nine percent of human history. So the argument is that our brains are still wired to be most comfortable only to work with that number. And then there's one hundred and fifty, which has become popularly known as the Dunbar number, which is a, which, which basically looks at brain size according to body mass, and it predicts. This is very esoteric and takes a while to explain, but it basically predicts that. At any one time, there's only about 150 people that you'd feel comfortable seeing at a bar and pulling up a chair and having a beer with them. I mean, you get beyond that, you lose a sense that you're connected to them. Well, if you want to have people acting ethically, they need. To, it helps if they feel that their actions make a difference. And so, if you're in this kind of dynamic that we're talking about, the first thing I would I would make sure that you're in sizes of organizations that matches human beings' neurological capability of being able to have authentic understanding that their actions make a difference. And for, for for these purposes, I would not go above 30. I might even stick with four to six because people are going to be in difficult conversations and you want them to be able to speak and to listen. You get above that. I mean, you can't have a conversation with 300 people. You just can't do it. And so you can't just have a group meeting where you have three representatives stepping, stepping up there and having... Know, saying what's important to them. You really need to put people in the sizes of those organizations. That's step one. Step two, I would go through that exercise of having people list those six or seven pieces of music that put those in those psychological states of mind so that you tell them, before you come to this meeting, listen to friends or whatever their, 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 their version of making you recognize that you want to sustain relationships, whatever that is, um, because that will help them orient themselves to put aside the boxing gloves of Rocky and actually feel like they want to have a conversation with the people that they that they have. And then after that, then I would say, let's pick an artifact. Frankly, I think music is dangerous because people are so locked into what their favorite music is. I don't like country. I don't like rock. I don't like classical or whatever. But I think dogs are safer. In fact, the, the group Braver Angels that tries to get Republicans and Democrats to sit down and and work through issues, they have found that talking about the dogs is one of the more effective things. It's kind of a safe space. And I can give a lot more examples of that. I think sports can be a, a good one on that. Uh, there is a state senator in Ohio. She was the former minority leader of the, um, uh, uh, in the state Senate, who I interviewed for a podcast that I did, who always made sure that she had food for both sides before they went into debate, just to try to break bread together. You know, So you can choose which one that you want, but put them in small groups and have them listening to something coming in so they're oriented to being a positive conversation as opposed to duking it out one more time.
1: As we look to the future, you know, we start implementing, we start getting our team set, we start helping to to embrace the right mindset. We need to start really listening, you know, and I think that is a key and that's a theme, you know, that's just tried and true, you know, really sitting down and listening not just hearing how you can, you know, make your next point and refute their case, but to just really listen and just get to the heart of what they're feeling. You know, how do organizational leaders then go to protect what they've, what they fought for? You know, because w- with this, I mean, a lot of times you do come in, we, we see a situation where usually it's too late. Like something has happened that sparks, okay, something needs to change. Like something happens and then the change. Sometimes, I mean, people and see it early on and, and embrace this mindset and philosophy of the culture. I want to create my organization, but more times than not, I would argue it's, Hey, you know, something happened now I need to change. So from creating from, from having that relapse, from having the culture go backwards on itself, um, to get to a place where it becomes, you know, like what the story you started out with a family, great organization, but they were at each other's throats, the shareholders, you know, how do you protect it from, ever going back there and as an organizational leader seeing and and being the gatekeeper to know hey I want to fight for this because we work so hard to get everyone to really work together
0: especially give, that's a great question and I will say that I don't think I know 100% the answer on this but this is where my starting point is so particularly these days when there is so much negativity out there on so many things which you cannot screen out I mean those are people who have lives after they go out to you know, in the day. And so, I mean, it's, 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 it's not a hermetically sealed environment that you have. You're going to have to continue to work at it. And so it's not that we had the two day retreat that I just kind of described with my family business and then, okay, we did that. Everybody shared their stories and now we're good to go. Um, actually that family business, what they did was they intentionally started to come up with projects that they would work together. Um, not necessarily to have those same conversations of what my values are and your values are, but a common project that they would work together, whether it was for charitable purposes, uh, whether it was for something with the employees in the organization, but something that they were working together intentionally with people who disagreed with them on the, all these other things, and they continued to do it. So they committed themselves not to just the one-off. They were grateful for the one-off, and that started the conversation, but then it was like, okay, let's keep working together. So you got to keep building on it. And maybe you have to have the retreat as an annual kind of a thing for people to share the stories. But even there, there's got to be something between the annual retreats. You, if I mean, Organizational cultures aren't one-off things. They're daily things. They're hourly things. I mean, that's what gets built. In the, and if you aren't in, including this aspect, the, the, these positive ways for people to interact with each other, Things, things can they don't necessarily have to but things can regress at that point
1: because i mean at the end of the day culture does not live in a vacuum right
0: it's a living thing too
1: again timothy fort professor of business law and ethics
0: here at the kelly school of business thank you so much for being our guest we're just so honored for your wisdom uh, my pleasure and i've got to say this was really helpful for me to hear those questions like i said when your introduction this helped me think through of how to frame things better, for what I need to write. So I'm really grateful that you gave me the opportunity to be here.
1: Oh, it's our honor. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here in the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.